Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome back. It was one of the most followed murder investigations of 2021. And despite the fact that the only suspect in the case, the man who confessed to the killing, is himself now dead, the victim's family is still trying to get their day in court. Speaking, of course, of the Gabby Petito Brian Laundry case. Petito's parents are now suing Laundry's parents. They say the Laundries knew Gabby was dead the whole time, but instead of telling them or the authorities the truth, they helped their son cover up the murder and plan to flee the country. That's what the lawsuit says. The Laundries say they didn't know, they had no obligation to speak, and the Petito's lawsuit uh, is groundless. Representatives of both families were in court today, and a judge will decide whether the suit goes to trial or whether it goes away. In the meantime, I am joined by someone who is at the very, very center of this case. The Laundry family uh, attorney, Stephen Bertolino, joins us tonight. Mr. Bertolino, thank you for being here. Uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, in this lawsuit, it says in black and white that the Laundries knew that Gabby Petito was dead while this search was happening and that they didn't tell anyone, but that they knew. Did the Laundries know that Gabby Petito was dead during that time? Well, good evening, Brian. It's good to speak with you again. Um, what I can tell you is, with respect to the motion to dismiss that we filed, we have to deem all of the allegations contained in the complaint as true. So for purposes of what uh, happened today in the hearing, um, the judge has to assume that those allegations are true. Uh, what uh, Chris and Roberta knew and what I knew at that time um, you know, is not for me to speak of right now because it's uh, uh, the crux of the lawsuit that's uh, pending right now, and it wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment. However, on the aspect of the motion to dismiss, assuming all of those allegations are true, it doesn't really make uh, much of a difference. Um, what I knew or what Chris and Roberta knew, we did not have to disclose to any third party and specifically to law enforcement or the Petito family. And I understand what you're saying, Mr. Bertolino. Uh, in the hearing today, the way the law works, it has to be assumed that everything in the lawsuit is true. Uh, but, you know, I was out there. People were searching. You had law enforcement all over the country. I mean, you know how, how this case was. You had the entire country searching for Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie at one point. Uh, and, and it sounds like you will not deny 
that the laundries knew, that they knew something. What I had said months ago, Brian, was that I don't know exactly what Brian had said to his parents. Uh, I had said uh, publicly, uh, perhaps even on uh, this particular show, that what Brian told me was privileged. I was not going to share it. I had conversations with Brian. I had conversations with Chris and Roberta. I had conversations with them separately, and I had conversations with them together. So it's not for me to comment at this point in time what Chris and Roberta knew. Uh, I can tell you what I knew. I can maybe perhaps someday tell you what uh, what Brian knew, uh, but none of that's going to happen tonight on this show. Yeah, you've said that in the past, that someday the truth will come out. Um, obviously, there is a lawsuit pending. But in that lawsuit, I- I've got to ask you, because it says these things in the lawsuit, it also says that the laundries, your, your clients, were planning to get Brian out of the country. Uh, was that plan, in fact, happening behind the scenes? Yeah, well, I think that all of that speculation came from the... Uh the legal experts and the pundits that uh, were on 24-hour news shows that had to fill in some time. And uh, what better way to fill into time than make stuff up? Um, So, you know, in reality, you think about what happened, Brian, you were there. Uh, Chris and Roberta did nothing but stay in their home. You know, there was speculation that there were burner phones, that we were dressing him up in funny outfits and sending him across the Mexican border, uh, sending him across uh, certain bodies of water to other countries in the Bahamas or perhaps out on the Appalachian Trail. Um, all of that was just, uh, you know, fill-in work uh, for the networks that had to fill in some time 24-7. You mentioned that I was there. I was outside the house for, for a long time watching your clients come and go, along with a lot of other media. Uh, and when Brian Laundry was missing, one thing that always struck me was that um, Chris and Roberta didn't seem especially emotional. They weren't you know, pleading with the media to help find him. And, and once he, he was located by them and we learned that he committed suicide, I've always wondered, Mr. Bertolino, did his parents know that he committed suicide? Did they know all of that time? And that is why they didn't appear so emotional. And that is why they didn't, you know, come out to the media and, and beg for help. Well, Brian, what I've said in the past is, you know, rhetorically, what did people expect them to do? They knew Brian went into the preserve. Um, I, I said at one point that he left, he was distraught. I made mention that, you know, Chris said to me, he wished he could have prevented Brian from going, but he knew he couldn't stop him. Um, you know, they, they were concerned about their son's well-being uh, when he went hiking in the preserve and, and when he was home the entire time. Uh, with that being said, they were somber. They were quiet. And I can tell you they were very upset and very emotional with me. Uh, But when you've got a a gaggle of press and screaming public out at your door 24 hours a day, uh, did you think that Brian and and Roberta were going to go down to Walmart and start putting up signs, help me find my son? They knew where their son was. They knew where he went. Uh, We said it. And as it turns out, unfortunately, we were correct. Uh, Brian never left the preserve. And I certainly think law enforcement knew that all along as well. And that's why, you know, some people in the press and the public questioned whether Chris and Roberta should have done more. Uh, but what more could they have really done when you had all that law enforcement manpower searching? Well, well, let me interrupt you, Mr. Berlina. You're saying what more could they have done? But I mean, ju- just honestly, I mean, it seems like they really did nothing. I mean, they stayed in the house. Their son was missing. Gabby was missing. Uh, you know, their son's fiance. They didn't really do anything at all, did they? 
Well, again, you you tell me, Brian, what should they have done? Did you want them to go to Walmart and hang up the sign? The entire country. Couldn't they come out and couldn't they have come outside and pleaded? Couldn't they have come outside and pleaded with the world? If you know where Gabby is, uh, come forward. If, if you know where Brian is, come forward. I mean, it, why couldn't they have done that? Well, I think you just misspoke and I know you corrected yourself and, and you're saying, you know, where could you tell us where Brian is? They knew where Brian was. It wasn't a question. The only people that were speculating that Brian was somewhere other than the preserve was the press and the public. So what is the point in pleading something when you know the answer? Let me ask you this, Mr. Bertolino. You've obviously been giving um, the laundry's legal advice through this whole process. A lot of people would say from a legal perspective, you've given them very good advice because they um, haven't been in trouble so far uh, in any sort of criminal trouble and you've, you've kept them out of trouble. But do you have any regrets? I mean, along the way, do, do you think you should have had them talk to the media or perhaps seem a little more human, even though you protected them legally? Do you think you made any mistakes along the way since now they are really in many ways just, you know, it, it seems like hated by the world? You know, hated is one word, vilified is another. Um, but in the end, Brian, you know, you asked a very good question. You know, it's emotional for me. It's emotional for Chris and Roberta because we are friends. They did lose a child. Uh, they, they lost a, a young man that, that I knew since he was born. And yeah, that's upsetting. But I'll tell you what I told the FBI when they left my office the last day and said, uh, well, Brian's dead now. And I told them, look at me. I did everything the right way. We have no regrets. The parents did everything the right way and they have no regrets. Brian, what you have to understand is that Brian Laundrie was a grown man. He was a young man, but he made his decisions and we had to abide, especially myself as his attorney at that time. We had to abide and I had to abide by the decisions that Brian was making. And with that in mind, we made every possible step that we thought was good at the time with the consultation of Brian involved in that. And there were some things that we certainly can look back and say, what if? And Chris and Roberta and I had that conversation just today after this hearing. And I had to remind them of certain situations and certain conversations that were had. And we all circled back to, yes, we are very comfortable with the decisions we made. We're not happy that Brian is gone. We're not happy that Gabby is gone, but I don't think we could have prevented either one of those. Do Chris and Roberta want to, want to speak out at some point? I mean, when, when this civil lawsuit is over at some point, do they want to share their story? The answer to that is they were, they were close. I mean, there was a long time they were angry. They were angry for many reasons. They were angry for the people outside of their home. They were angry for people not understanding that this was not their doing that they lost a child, that they're suffering too. Um, they were, you know, lightening up a little bit from that, from that anger perspective. And, you know, there, there may have been a point in time where communications could have had um, taken place. And now we're back into, we'll say round two or round three with uh, the Petito family. And somebody asked me earlier on a program, um, you know, if, if there was a sit down, a four way, if you will, of the two families, could this be resolved? And my response to that was, you know, the only thing that the Petito family has done as far as communication is thrown out Twitters and thrown out letters to the public. 
Not once. I mean, but come on, come on, Mr. Bertolino, though, for, for, for you to you know, listen, we're not going to go after the potatoes. I mean, come on, I'm come not. on. I mean, we, we know what they've the gone potatoes. through. You're, you're um, asking me. We're not. Yeah, you're asking me, Ryan, you're asking no, me. No, but they can tweet what they want. Resolution. Could there be conversations? There has never been an olive branch reached out to our side. The only thing that's been out. Uh, but out why there is it? There, I mean, their daughter, situation. their daughter was murdered by their son. Their, their daughter w was murdered by the laundry son. Why would they be the ones uh, to, to put out an olive branch? I mean, I, th I think we're just going to disagree on that point. But Mr. Bertolino, uh, as always, I appreciate your time. Um, and, and I thank you for coming on tonight. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you for having me. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm joined by very special guest, Brian Entin, who is a senior national correspondent for News Nation. Now, Brian covered Gabby's case from the start, and you'll hear more about his history and interest in this case, and it's a fascinating two-part interview. Now, the clip you just heard was an interview Brian did with Steve Bertolino, the laundry's attorney. And I know it's a long clip, but I wanted you to hear it in full, particularly the end of it. It's truly staggering to me, and that's putting it mildly. And Brian and I discuss it in detail, along with other critical issues regarding Gabby's case, including the police body-worn camera footage, the lawsuit, and the so-called confession letter. And I also just want to give you a heads up that this episode and the second part of the interview may well be triggering, and so listener discretion is advised. Also, I decided to drop this interview now because it's current and timely, particularly given the decision that Judge Carroll took to allow the lawsuit Gabby's parents have filed against the laundries to proceed, which is excellent news in my opinion. I've wanted to have a conversation with Brian Enton for some time, and I wanted you to hear it too. And so without further delay, here's my very informative and illuminating interview with Brian Enton. Excellent. So I'll just start off and I obviously know who you are, but I'd like you to introduce yourself to my listeners because I'm really pleased to have you on, Brian. I know how busy you are and I've wanted to have this conversation for some time. So please let my listeners know who you are. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking. My name is Brian Enton. I'm a correspondent with News Nation. So I uh, cover all sorts of stories throughout the country. Obviously, the Gabby Petito story was was and continues to be a big one for me. I mean, it's been such a huge case. And I just want to start off by saying your reporting was just exemplary and incredible on the case. And it, that's really when I was first introduced to your work. But it would be really interesting to know, actually, what was your entry point into the Gabby Petito case? So I'm based in Miami. That's where I live. So that's sort of like where I dispatch from to cover stories. You know, it started out just as this um, young girl missing, you know, the boyfriend returned home or the fiance returned home. And my bosses thought it was interesting. It wasn't getting a lot of coverage, but it was sort of picking up a little bit of traction online. It was she had just been really reported missing for a couple of days. So they said, um, why don't you go over to Northport, you know, where this boyfriend has turned up and where his family lives and just, you know, let's just see what it is. It's interesting in the beginning, like some of the people I worked with, their theory was, oh, maybe it's even like a social media hoax and they're just trying to get attention. Like we didn't know what to think. 
So my photographer, Luis, and I drove over to Northport. And uh, I just thought we'd be there for like a couple days, kind of like most most stories sort of resolve themselves in a couple days like this. So, you know, packed a couple days worth of clothes and just thought, you know, it was going to be like kind of like any other story. And it's crazy. Like we never ended up going home. <laughs> we just we were there for like almost two months. The, the whole thing sort of took on a life of its own from there. Yes. And I recall you being on the posted up outside the the laundry house. And I wondered what sort of hours you were doing at that time, because you seem to be doing a lot of lives and covering it 24 seven. And it really seemed to be all consuming in terms of your work. And also, of course, it's a very distressing case in and of itself. I mean, what sort of hours were you working across that time? Yeah, so we were working almost around the clock. We set up outside the house and like at the beginning, it was kind of just us and a couple local reporters and then more and more national media showed up and the people in the neighborhood were getting frustrated that the road was blocked. And so the police basically like cleared off the street and we had nowhere to go. And at that point, like I really didn't want to leave the house because we didn't know where Brian Laundry was. If he was in the house, we didn't know what was going to happen. It, it was sort of like the focus was that house. I didn't want to leave. Some people left to go post up at the police department. So we made friends with the neighbors, these really, really nice neighbors, the people who live right next to the laundries. They were super cool. And they basically said, you know, you can stay on our lawn and we'll just, you know, that's no problem. So really, it kind of annoyed the police because like, I think they thought they were going to be able to get rid of us. But then once the neighbors gave us permission, like, there really wasn't anything the police could do. So and we were like right next to the laundry's house and window. So it was kind of awkward sometimes because, you know, I could have reached out and like touched them sometimes when they left their house. But it was a really good position for us to just sort of keep an eye on everything. Sorry, I'm back to your question. Yeah, we were working... I mean, we had a hotel right down the street where we would go to get some sleep, but we were working, you know, I don't know, maybe 18 hours a day. Like I would get really paranoid to leave just because there were a couple of times we would leave in the middle of the night and like something would happen. Like Luis, my photographer, sometimes like what we would split it up or sleep in the car, or we became friends with some other reporters out there. So we would try to kind of like come up with a little system like, hey, will you call me if you see something tonight? And then we'll do the same for you tomorrow night, that kind of a thing. Well, it was certainly incredible coverage and I can't help but feel because you were there and you were interacting with a lot of people online that it created an energy of its own, Gabby's case. And I think so many people felt very invested and very concerned about what had happened. But I still feel that a lot of that was down to the coverage of the laundries and also you being there posted up. I know other outlets came along too, but you were very interactive with people. And as we know, Gabby's remains were actually found because of internet sleuthers, as they were, or people on social media reading and consuming the case and wanting to help. What was that like for you? Because you were interacting with a lot of people, you were answering questions. And I just want to hear your POV before we get into some of the things that perhaps surprised you about the case. And of course, more things have come to light more recently that I want to ask you about specifically. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I had never really covered I mean, I've been doing this kind of work. I'm 37 and I've been doing it since I graduated college, but I'd never covered a case quite like this with this much interest, which I started to realize very quickly. People were wanting interaction and wanting information like constantly. 
And I think people appreciated that, you know, there were a lot of bloggers out there and people that had theories and, you know, they were out searching for Brian Laundry. And I think people appreciated that I just kind of came at the story like I would like any other story I've covered, just trying to be like totally fact-based, you know, trying not to put my own opinion or spin on what I thought was happening or was going to happen. I wouldn't put out any information until like I confirmed it, which I think people appreciated, which sometimes I got beat, but it just, you know... I didn't want to obviously get anything wrong. So yeah, it was wild. I mean, very quickly people started following me and um, wanting information all the time, which was hard because like sometimes I didn't have any new information. I mean, some days would be really, really action packed and the laundries would leave and we'd follow them or we'd get new information from police or from the FBI. But then other days were just very, very slow because we were there for almost two months and, and people were just like clamoring, like, what's new? Why aren't you, you know, putting out anything new? And it's like, you know, it's been a slow day, but I wanted to do a good job for Gabby's family. I wanted to do a good job for the followers. Like I felt very invested pretty quickly in, in the case. And I didn't want to ever put out, like I said, wrong information, or I realized that people were trusting me. So I really wanted to do a good job. So I became kind of obsessed. Like I was saying, I mean, not sleeping, not wanting to miss a thing, not wanting to let people down. So it definitely became like my whole life pretty much during that time. I certainly did get that impression. And I just want to thank you for that approach that you took of wanting to make sure the information was accurate, feeling that it was a heavy responsibility for Gabby and for her family, first and foremost. I really felt that, although we hadn't had a conversation, you became my go-to source, actually, as well as scanning and looking at lots of other information and reporters. But you became much more, for me, the trusted source of information coming from the ground and being careful and being balanced. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. And I also want to say thank you for being probative. Thank you for probing and questioning when you've interviewed people, and I'm talking specifically about interviews I've seen with you with Steve Bertolino and not letting certain things go, not necessarily unanswered, but challenged. And you did challenge on a, a number of occasions. I'm going to ask you about those specific challenges more recently, because I think that that's important as well of questioning and probing and not just accepting at times, particularly with a case like this, where to set the context, and I've been deconstructing it on crime analysts, but Brian returns home in Gabby's van without Gabby. And Gabby's parents have been calling Brian, who has not been returning their calls, and they were calling the laundries too. And the laundries weren't returning their calls either. So whilst they were frantically trying to find information out about their daughter, the laundries weren't communicating 
with them at that specific time. And of course, there is now a lawsuit about that matter specifically. But when Steve Bertolino more recently has talked about matters of transparency, for me, it's been somewhat ironic. And I'm talking about the notebook specifically when he said on June 24th that he released that letter, the eight-page letter, as a matter of transparency. And my question initially was, well, if it's a matter of transparency, why wasn't everything released? And and perhaps I'm just going to give you some time just to think about that, because there have been things that have been said across time that I think needed to be challenged of him saying he did things in the right way and, well, what would the laundries be expected to do? And you didn't let him off the hook on numerous occasions, but we're always very respectful. And that's probably not always that easy when you're consumed by a case, by a situation, and at times by a family who are searching for answers and it seems that there is a lack of transparency. So that's a, that's a long way of saying that in many interviews that I watched you in with Steve Bertolino specifically, that you did question and challenge him um, and put him under some pressure at times, not just accepting the narrative. And I believe that you did that respectfully and that's why people are still talking to you. But the lawsuit is an interesting development, isn't it, by Gabby Petito's family. What do you think might come out of that? Let's start at the end point and then I'll work our way back across some of those more specific points to do with your interviewing. What do you think will happen with the lawsuit? We know that it's moving forward. What do you think the next steps are? Well, just first back to what you said, like some people got kind of mad at me a few times, like, oh, you're like too nice to people. But well, that's just my personality to be respectful. And I kind of took the approach from the beginning, like I'm going to get more information out of these people if I just stay respectful, don't attack them. So Mr. Bertolino gave me a lot of information many times, I think, because, you know, I didn't attack him in a way like others may have just attacked him sort of just to get that one good interview. And it's a great moment for TV. And, and then he's never going to talk to you again, you know, and I kind of knew like I was in it for the long haul. Um, and I still am. So I've always tried to be respectful, even to Northport police when, you know, at the worst of it, when they lost track of Brian Laundry, And of course, like I'm mad. Everybody's mad. It's ridiculous. I just tried to be very down the middle, which kind of, I think, paid off. But in terms of the lawsuit, what do I think is going to come of it? Well, I mean, I think it's a really big deal that it survived this long. I mean, most almost all of the legal experts I interviewed uh, initially said that they thought the judge was going to throw it out. And he didn't, which I think is a big deal. And I think we're going to find out a lot more information that we don't have because there's going to be discovery and there's going to be depositions and, you know, the laundries could plead the fifth, but they're still, I mean, we've never even heard their voice. I was thinking about that the other day. Like, I don't even really know what their voices sound like parents and like, we're going to hear their voice. They're probably going to have to do a deposition. So all of that will be really interesting. And back to Mr. Bertolino, you know, when I was interviewing legal experts leading up to the judge making the decision about whether or not to drop the lawsuit, most people were assuming that the whole thing was based on whether or not the laundries had the right to remain silent and whether they had the right to listen to their attorney and not talk. But it was interesting that then it came out that it actually all went back to Mr. Bertolino's statement when he said that he hoped the search was successful. And so the Petito's attorney 
created a whole argument around that saying, no, we're not just talking about the laundry staying silent. We're talking about them using their attorney to deceive the Petitos, saying that they hope the, the search is successful when they knew that it wasn't going to be. So anyway, it was very interesting. I thought that the whole thing came around. And in a way, like Mr. Bertolino is the reason that this lawsuit moves on. Yes, it was fascinating to hear one key aspect of the lawsuit focused on a statement made by Steve Bertolino on behalf of the Laundries. This is what Steve Bertolino said on the 14th of September. It's our understanding that a search has been organised for Miss Petito in or near Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. On behalf of the Laundry family, it's our hope that the search for Miss Petito is successful and that Miss Petito is reunited with her family. I thought that was somewhat ironic as well, that it was about what he had said, and the context that the Laundries said that they were going to remain silent, and more importantly, they did not remain silent. And the family, Gabby's family, believed they gave false hope through that statement and misinformation and false information intentionally. So I thought that was a very interesting development, watching that hearing to dismiss. It was the motion to dismiss that I watched. It was live. It was covered because there were cameras that were allowed in court. And I'm glad that Judge Carroll decided to move forward because as we then learned on June 24th, there was an eight-page so-called confession letter that the FBI handed over to Steve Bertolino and the Petito family lawyer, Pat Riley, after a meeting. And that there are apparently other letters, and we'll get to that. But it was after the uh, initial hearing to dismiss, which I thought was very interesting, the timing of it. I just wondered whether you had any thoughts or observations about the hearing, the motion to dismiss being heard on the Wednesday and then on the Friday when the context of that particular day was when Roe versus Wade was overturned. So it was a huge news story. And on that very day, a Friday of all days, and with that news, which really took a lot of people by storm, Steve Bertolino took the decision to release the eight-page letter. What did you think about that? Firstly, the timing, and then perhaps we'll get into the letter itself. We had all been really pushing him to release the letter when when he was able to get it. I know I was bothering him. A lot of other reporters were probably bothering him. It was definitely interesting that he released it. I think it took the Petitos by surprise from what I could gather. I don't think they knew that he was going to put it out right away. I mean, he said that he was trying to be transparent. But um, one thing I've learned from dealing a lot with Mr. Bertolino, I mean, think what you want of him, but he is very, very smart. And I don't think he does things just sort of on a whim. So I know that he put a lot of thought into whether he was going to release it and why he was going to release it. I don't know if perhaps he thought that people would feel bad for Brian based on what they read in that letter and, and sort of buy the story that was in the letter. And maybe that's what he was thinking. It seemed to kind of do the opposite to me. I think most people immediately thought, you know, this is like a bunch of rubbish, but that could be one reason, I think. Or maybe you, he wanted to beat the Petitos to it. I mean, that's the other thing. Perhaps he just thought, let's let's just get it out. Let's rip the Band-Aid. I think that could be a real possibility too. Like this thing is going to surface at some point because, you know, we've also all been putting in these freedom 
of information requests with the FBI trying to get the file, which is going to take time, but it was going to surface at some point. So maybe he just thought, let's just be done with it. Let's just put it out. Did you have any knowledge of that meeting with the FBI happening on the Friday? Was that common knowledge that that meeting was going to take place or or not? It wasn't common knowledge. I had a tip that they were going to be able to get the rest of the um, evidence, the families, but I didn't know, you know, that the notebook would be part of that and that it would be released and all of that. Because it seemed to be a very quick decision in one sense that that meeting took place. The FBI handed over these letters and then Steve Bertolino took a decision to release that eight-page letter. Not the other letters, but that eight-page letter specifically. It seemed to be a quick decision. But you believe that it was part of a strategy that Steve Bertolino had. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think it was either A, the strategy was, let's get it over with. Like you said, there's a lot of other news going on. Let's just rip the Band-Aid. Or B, they thought that people were going to somehow sympathize for the laundries after they read that letter. It's eight pages. Did you think that we would ever see it? I'm just curious about what you thought, whether we would ever see various extracts from this notebook, because we knew the FBI had recovered it. But I was wondering whether the lawsuit would lead to it being discoverable, i.e. the evidence. But of course, if the motion to dismiss, if the judge decided to dismiss the case, the lawsuit, then we may not have seen anything at all. And I think that timing is is just very interesting. Yeah, I, I always thought we would see it. I mean, I didn't know if it would be years from now. Again, because I knew... I mean, I've done these requests before, and with the federal government, it's really, really hard, like getting um, these files, even when a case is closed. But you can get them. It just like it might take a year. It might take a year and a half going back and forth with the requests. So I had a feeling we would see the letter eventually. I also didn't know the condition. I mean, we had heard that it was in the water, that parts of it were understandable. I didn't know, like, is most of it going to be waterlogged and we get a line or two? But it was interesting. It was actually, I mean, you could read the whole thing for the most part. It was in really good condition. Yes, it was. And the FBI can do incredible things in terms of being able to recover um, specifically things that have been written. And I think it makes for very interesting reading. I've already taken it apart on Crime Analyst and talked about it specifically just in terms of changes of tense and the way that it's written and how it's written. And it it seems to me to be the work of, of fiction, effectively. You know, there's lots of things that aren't said. For example, there's no apology to his own family. His family seemed to be missing in that note, i.e. if you're going to take your own life and that's what you're committed to doing. And he said, I, I have taken my life. Well, he hadn't at that point then why doesn't he say something to his family? That seems to be a bigger mission. And and maybe that's in the other letters that exist from the notebook. But certainly to say that he killed her because it was a mercy killing seems to me absolutely fanciful to throttle your beloved, to strangle them when you don't know the extent of someone's injuries just is completely at odds. I was hoping you might just talk a little bit about the geography that where in Spread Creek, where this is supposed, well, where it potentially happened was actually, and where her body was found was very close to the van. And you've been to that location. So can you just say a little bit about what your understanding is of the location and where Gabby's remains were found and the proximity to the van? 
Yeah, sure. So yeah, I've been out there. So there's like this main highway that goes through Grand Teton, and then there's a dirt road off of it where they went down. And it's maybe like an eight to 10 minute drive down the dirt road. There's campsites, and then the van was pulled off right there on the side of the dirt road. But there's various campsites. We saw people when we were out there. I mean, it's a very, it's beautiful there. It's a very popular area with tourists. So it's remote, but, you know, there's definitely people driving in and out. So the van was right there on the side of the dirt road. And then there's this creek bed and creek. And on the other side of it is where her body was discovered, which is probably a 10 minute walk from the van to where her body was discovered. Granted, you have to walk through a shallow creek, but it wasn't that far. You could get back to the van within 10 minutes. And the other thing is the cell phone service was really, really good there, which was because I wasn't expecting that, but I had almost full service. I had AT&T and I know I remembered how good it was because we were using the Bethune family's video on YouTube to figure out exactly where the van was because, you know, they had it in their video. So I was able to like stream the video and go back and forth. And so the internet was very good. So I immediately didn't buy the story for that reason, just because in my mind, I was going back mentally to being there. And I'm like, this just doesn't make sense. Like you weren't in the middle of nowhere. They probably, he probably could have seen the van from where he was and the whole idea of a phone or just yelling out for people. Again, there were, there's many campsites around there. You could have just started screaming. So it just didn't really add up to me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It doesn't ring true on any level. You're apparently in pitch dark, but what about your phone? Why didn't they both have their phones? Gabby being an influencer, I'm sure she took her phone with her. Why couldn't he see? Yes, it might have been dark, but they would have been close together if they're coming back in the dark. The omissions of, you know, he couldn't see her injuries, but then he knew they were life-threatening. And what does he do after he's killed her? There's nothing about that of how he then gets back to the van. And in fact, every step he takes is to deceive thereafter, not to call for help, not to call for assistance, which if it were an accident and if your beloved, would you leave them out there on their own and fill the van up? with gas and then travel to the other side of the country, leaving her there and text messages taken to deceive. So I I think there are lots of manipulative narratives in there to try and lead. It's just common sense. I mean, it doesn't take a, you know, you're obviously very scientific and you look at it through that lens, but I, I just think it's common sense too. Like who, 
a mercy killing. You kill the person you're in love with and it doesn't make any sense. It just, no. it, it's crazy, you know? It's nonsensical. And yes, full disclosure, I have been trained by the FBI on statement analysis and taking documents apart and looking for veracity and indicators of veracity and indicators of deception of which there are many markers. And, and even the timeline doesn't make sense of how he he's laid it out. But what we do know is it's one of potentially three confessions that may exist and I think that was something that you were made aware of through, was it Pat Riley, through Gabby's family lawyer, that he attended that meeting, and as did Steve Bertolino, and they were told that there were three letters. And did he get to read the other letters? I'm not sure whether he saw each item or whether he was told about them. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. I had an interview with Pat Riley and I just wanted to get his reaction to the notebook. And that's when he just sort of started telling me this other information about other confessions. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, there's other confessions. So yeah, he says that there are a couple of other confessions. One, he said, is on, is on a digital device. I didn't get the uh, impression that he had seen those yet. But then he also talked about this other letter from Roberta to Brian, from Brian's mom that said something like burn after you read this on the outside. And he didn't want to get into what the letter said. I tried to really push him. He had read the letter, but he basically said it's going to be very interesting when that is eventually made public. Yes. And I think that that is very intriguing, that there were other confession letters, which I believe he said to you, they are somewhat different to the eight page that was released by Steve Bertolino and the Roberta letter. I have to wonder whether the Roberta letter is more significant and whether that's the reason why it wasn't disclosed. Because when someone says, I, I released this one eight page letter as a matter of transparency, they were his words. Why didn't Steve Bertolino release all of it if it truly were a matter of transparency? Right. Yeah. And I asked uh, him for the Roberta letter and he isn't releasing it. And according to the Petito family attorney, Pat Riley, he says that Stephen Bertolino had a look of shock when he saw the Roberta letter, almost like he either didn't know it existed or didn't know that it was going to be released that way from the FBI, which I thought was really interesting. So there's definitely like a lot of, on both sides with the attorneys, this is very personal. You can tell Pat Riley is tied in very close with his clients, the Petitos, and very, very passionate. And Mr. Bertolino is obviously close with the Laundries and longtime friends with them. So you can tell with both of them, like there's this level of, like they really don't like each other. You know what I mean? Like, you know how with some cases, like at the end of the court case, lawyers will shake hands and if it's just a job, they might have a drink after the trial's over, even though they battled it out so hard. I mean, you can tell with these guys, they really don't like each other. Like this whole thing is really, really personal. Yes, it, it does feel that way. And you're, you've interviewed both sides, as it were. But I can't help but feel when someone says matter of transparency that they're not being transparent. And that's exactly what the lawsuit is all about. What did the Laundries know? And perhaps you can just let my listeners know what you do know about the Roberta letter of what you learned from, from Pat Riley. 
So I don't want to get any of the, because he was very weird about it. Like he wouldn't tell me what was in it, but like he gave a couple little nuggets, like hints almost. And I, I tweeted the interview if anyone wants to go back and listen to it. But basically he said that on the outside, it said, burn this, something along the lines of burn this after reading. And then he said that in the letter, it said something about like, I'll bake a cake with a knife or something if if you end up going to jail, something along those lines. I don't have the exact quote in front of me. And he was kind of paraphrasing it too. And every time he would give me a little bit of information, he'd be like, no, no, but I don't want to talk anymore about it. I don't want to. It was kind of hard to figure out exactly what the letter meant, what, you know, the significance of it. And then later, Mr. Bertolino texted me that kind of playing it down and saying that, oh, this letter was from a long time ago before the trip even happened, which didn't really make any sense because the letter was apparently found in the van. Um, And he said something about, the message on the outside, which said burn after reading, had, had something to do with like a movie, like was like a, a spinoff of a movie. But then he didn't want to talk about the letter and he wouldn't give us give me a copy of the letter. So I think that letter would prove very interesting. I mean, if it weren't significant, why was it on Brian's person, given that he only took a, a few things with him and it was in the dry bag? But I believe you uh, or he said to you that it was a saw that she had offered. If I, if you go to jail, I'll bake a cake and put a saw in it. And that, a saw, yeah, yeah. That she had offered some form of assistance. Uh, there was an offer of help, and it was referenced throughout the time that Gabby was was missing. And of course, that may be very relevant to the lawsuit if it's believed. And this is what Gabby's family say that they knew that Gabby was dead and that Brian had killed Gabby, and that they had failed to act. They'd failed to act, and what's more, that whilst they were frantically searching for Gabby, the the laundries concealed Brian's whereabouts. So this letter specifically could actually be the more significant writing. That's just my thought, given that um, it looks like Steve Bertolino is being transparent on the one hand, but withholding on the other. And Friday can be a, the news dump day, can't it, where things get hidden and are not picked up on. And I know a lot of my listeners said they were glad that I covered the letter being released because they had no idea that it had, as most people were still, you know, just in absolute shock about Roe versus Wade. That really was the news story on that day. So it may well have been missed. But I think the FBI may have been strategic too, handing this over in full transparency, because now we know that it exists. And I believe Steve Bertolino was questioned about whether it would be made available for the lawsuit. And he said that, yes, it would be um, discoverable and that it would be preserved. Yeah, yeah. That was one thing that Pat Riley said that Steve Bertolino assured him that it would be um, preserved. Yeah, that they weren't going to like get rid of the letter or anything like that. Another thought, just going back to Steve Bertolino, was, um, and I just listened to a, to your interview with him, actually, where he said that he doesn't regret anything that he has done, that the laundries, they have no regrets, which I found very peculiar, by the way, just given everything that, that's gone on. But he also said, he referenced, he'd said this to you a number of times now, that he may share with you someday what Brian told him, what the conversations were between the two. Do you think that will ever happen? Do you think that's a sincere and authentic thing to say? I think it could. He's been outspoken in many ways. I mean, 
listen, it wouldn't surprise me at some point, maybe. I think they're concerned now about the civil trial. I mean, I I really think he believed this was not going to happen. And again, like I told you, almost everyone I would interview, even people who obviously were huge supporters of the Petito family would say like, you know, I want this for them, but I don't see this case moving forward. So I, I think he was probably shocked. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. And the fact that he is now such an intimate part of this lawsuit, and that they even said that he would have been named in the lawsuit if he was a resident of Florida. So, like, I don't think he's going to give me or anyone all of that information while this lawsuit is now moving forward. But when it all settles, I could see the Laundries perhaps eventually doing an interview or something. Um, You know, that wouldn't surprise me either. But I think now that the lawsuit is moving forward, it's obviously going to be in their best interest legally to just clamp down on everything. Yes. I'm jumping in here. Now, you've heard Brian and I talk about what Pat Riley, Gabby's mother, Nicole, and father, Joe's lawyer, said after the meeting with the FBI, and specifically about the Roberta letter. Now, I think it's very important, and so I want you to hear exactly what Pat Riley said in its entirety, So here's the full interview. Take a listen to this. So, Mr. Riley, obviously, I've read through the entire um, letter. Uh, Is is there any indication any of this was true about Gabby actually having an injury? Well, certainly that one of the causes of death, death was blunt force trauma. But I don't know that Brian Laundrie's explanation in his notebook is what the actual blunt force trauma came from. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he basically says it was a mercy killing, it's just, it's so disturbing to read that. Well, you know, the the whole tone of that note, and yes, it is disturbing to read that, uh, seems to be an explanation for what he did. Uh, Perhaps that was released by Mr. Bertolino as as a way to say, hey, he really was doing Gabby a favor. Interesting, uh, interesting thought. Uh, But if that's true, why did he just leave her body there? Why didn't he tell anyone about it? So uh, there are other stories that he told as well. So this isn't the only version. What do you mean by other stories? There's at least one and possibly two other confessions. We don't have them at this point. We just have this one. Uh, But my understanding is that there was one on a digital device of some kind, and there may be another writing. So like something, uh, he recorded himself confessing? Either either that or typed it. Or typed it, okay. And how do you know that? Uh, because the FBI told us. Okay. So will you get access to those confessions? Yes. We don't and have them yet, but we will. Do you think they'll be different? From what we were told, they are somewhat different. What about Chris and Roberta Laundry? Do you think they knew about this? Um, because it's kind of hard to tell in the letter 
whether he was sort of informing his parents in the letter or whether this is something that they already knew about? Oh, they already knew. They already knew. And so uh, it's my understanding that Mr. Bertolino released this notebook, these portions from the notebook saying he was releasing it in the interest of transparency. I don't really know what that means, why he felt he needed to be transparent and release these, the notebook, but he didn't release the entire notebook. And he, uh, someone should ask him to release the letter that Roberta Laundrie wrote to uh, Brian Laundrie uh, that on the envelope, that on the envelope says burn after you read this. So there was a letter from Roberta to Brian within the notebook. No, it was not within the notebook. It was a separate letter. That was found out there with the notebook, though. My understanding is that the, that the letter at one point had been in the van, uh, but then it was taken from the laundry home during the uh, time when the search warrant was executed. So a letter from Roberta to Brian that said, burn this letter after yes. you read it. And yes. were you able to read the letter? Yes, I was. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you that I... I had an idea what was in the letter before I read it. I knew about the letter. Uh, I don't believe Mr. Bertolino knew about the letter and the surprise on his face was very interesting as he read that letter. That was all I can say. He has the letter. He has the original of the letter. Uh, And I've asked him to maintain that for purposes of the litigation. Uh, I don't have a copy of it. I expect I'll be getting a copy of it. He wouldn't allow me to get a copy of it today, Uh, but it, Within that letter is an, an offer uh, from uh, Roberta Laundry to assist her son. I don't want to say more because I don't have the letter, but it's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting, pretty odd letter. So a letter from Roberta to Brian to assist her son, assist him to do what? Let me back up and say there's no date on the letter, um, but it would appear that the letter was written between the time that Gabby was murdered and Brian committed suicide. Uh, there's scenarios presented by Roberta in that letter. Of, for example, if you go to jail, I'll bake a cake and I'll put a knife in it or a saw in it. Um, there was also something referenced in that letter about Gabby. And I'd rather not go any further that at this point, the letter will speak for itself. And I don't want to say what, I don't want to paraphrase incorrectly what the letter said. I understand. I just want to make sure I can report it correctly. So was she sort of offering to help him kill himself? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. no. Okay. No, it was an, as I said, it was an offer that had to do with Gabby. After she was already dead. That's my belief. And you can't say anything more about what that offer was? I'm not comfortable without having it in front of me because I'll be paraphrasing and I don't want to paraphrase something that serious. But you expect to get that letter at some point? Yes. Yes. Wow. That sounds like that could be a real twist in all of this. Absolutely. And so this all went down today when you went to pick up the the things from the FBI. Yes. yes. What what was that like? I mean, with um, yeah, I mean, obviously, it got to be emotional. You're picking up Gabby's things, but also with Mr. Bertolino there. I mean, was it sort of a strange situation? Well, uh, Nicole Schmidt was 
initially very uncomfortable uh, being in the same room with Mr. Bertolino, especially in a, in a stressful situation where she's there to pick up the personal belongings of her deceased daughter. Uh, but eventually the, the stress in the room uh, dissipated. It was a, it was a professional um, uh, meeting and a, pro- a professional, the way it was hold- handled. And, and I attribute that a lot to the FBI. They were very friendly, very helpful, very cooperative, very, uh, very willing to assist. And just my last question, um, what is the Petito's reaction to this, this notebook, what Brian wrote in the notebook? How, how did they respond to that? They already knew about it. So they had already read it and had time to digest it. Yes. I mean, it must have been disturbing for them, though, to, to read it. It's almost in a way like Brian Laundrie trying to justify what he did in a sick way. Right. It's it's disgusting. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, since they've read it before, they're uh, somewhat desensis- desensitized to it. Uh, it's still hard to read. Um, but they read it with a great deal of skepticism, knowing that there's other documents with another explanation as to how things occurred. So uh, they're, they're, it's hard for them, but they're doing well. Well, thank you for your time tonight, Mr. Riley. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Brian. Thank you for having me. What did you think about that? It's fascinating what Pat Riley said, that there were multiple so-called confession letters and also the Roberta letter And the fact that he said that there was something significant in it, an offer of helping Brian, and that it was after Gabby went missing. Now this to me is highly significant. Gabby's parents said that they had proof that the Laundries knew Brian killed Gabby and that they failed to act and they concealed Brian's whereabouts. So I have to wonder, is this the proof that they're talking about? Well, you'll have to tune in next week when I discuss this further with Brian, and I have much more to say, and also some things that I learned from Brian have had a critical impact in my thinking about the case and what happened. Join me next week in the Intelligence Cell with Brian Entin. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.